This is episode 185 of That Shakespeare Life. Today's episode is brought to you by Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is the membership arm of That Shakespeare Life that offers you monthly digital history activity kits that let you try at home the history you learn about on the show. They work like science labs for history. Stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Well, I am Nigel Wood. I'm Professor of Literature at Loughborough University. Another great method for studying the history of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. So a witch bottle typically was made inside what's called a bellamine bottle, which is a type of brown salt-glazed stoneware from Germany. And they have a big round belly, which usually had a medallion on it, bearing a coat of arms or sometimes in the, the design of a flower. And then a stout neck, which had a fairly evil-looking, grimacing face on it. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When Shakespeare's plays are performed on stage and the magic of witches dazzles us with lights and smoke and mirrors, it's easy to think that these spells and incantations are just folklore, designed to be nothing more than a theater spectacle. Archaeological evidence from Shakespeare's lifetime, however, indicates that when Shakespeare had the second witch in Macbeth declare, eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm sting, lizard's leg and owl its wing, for a charm of powerful trouble like a hell broth boil and bubble, end quote. These items being listed in connection with a witch's brew were more than just ingredients for a nasty-smelling soup. Charms and real-life objects imbued with spells and magic were believed to be capable of causing not just harm, but very real double-double toil and trouble to combat the evil spirits and the rampant workings of witches in the 16th century. Your average man or woman in London would hide counter-magic items such as witch bottles, cats, shoes, and even horse skulls in the walls of their home as good luck against what they saw as very real evil spirits. Our guest this week is an expert in these counter-charms. Having written the journal article, The Archaeology of Counter-Witchcraft and Popular Magic, as well as the book published in 2019 titled Magical House Protection, The Archaeology of Counter-Witchcraft, in which he set out to find the various surviving counter-magic artifacts in the UK and cataloged a list of not only what kinds of items were kept to ward off evil like witches, but also where they were kept and why. Here to share his findings and explain the details behind a few of the counter-magic artifacts from Shakespeare's lifetime is our guest, Brian Hogarth. Brian has been studying history, archaeology, and folk beliefs since his teens. His undergraduate dissertation focused on folk beliefs and witchcraft, and he noticed there was a huge amount of work which could be done to further explore the archaeology of witchcraft. At that point, back in 1999, his research really escalated into a major project, which has culminated in the publication of Magical House Protection, the Archaeology of Counter-Witchcraft. Hello, Brian. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Brian writes that when it comes to material evidence, quote, it seems that the decline of magic was a slow and long drawn out affair, end quote. Brian, working backwards from the decline of magic to the life of William Shakespeare, was his lifetime a heyday for the presence of magic? 
Absolutely, it was, yeah. Um, a lot of the material artifacts that I study um, actually date a little bit after Shakespeare, so they're, they're sort of 17th century, but many of them were still being practised at the time that he was existing and writing as well. Pretty much the only thing that I study that post-dates Shakespeare was, is the witch bottles, I would say. But all of the other objects like shoes and skulls and uh, written charms and everything, they all happened well within his time of uh, writing plays. One of the artifacts Brian writes about as fending off the evil of witches was called a witch bottle. Brian, if someone finds an old bottle in the walls of their house, how do they know if it's a witch bottle? So a witch bottle typically was made inside what's called a bellamine bottle, which is a type of brown salt-glazed stoneware from Germany. They were nicknamed a bellamine after Cardinal Bellamine, but they were actually technically called Bartman stoneware. And they have a big round belly, which usually had a medallion on it, bearing a coat of arms or sometimes in the, the design of a flower. And then a stout neck, which had a fairly evil looking grimacing face on it. And this is why it was nicknamed after Cardinal Bellamine, who was a much hated cardinal at the time. But this type of stoneware bottle uh, was used for making witch bottles. And this practice began in the last, in the third quarter, sorry, of the 17th century. And these bottles typically contain, they were stoutly bunged. And they typically contain urine, bent nails and pins and hair, and sometimes nail pairings as well. What was the correct method of using a witch bottle so as to ward off the spell of a witch? Well, it seems there are actually two practices because some of the texts from the uh, very last part of the 17th century refer to boiling up a witch bottle, which seems to be a kind of pseudoscientific practice where, where people thought that if you were bewitched, there was some of the witch inside you. So if you urinated into a bottle, that would put some of the witch into that bottle. And then you could torture the liquid in that bottle by boiling it. And you would put um, pins in with it as well, which would cause excruciating pain to the witch, who theoretically would then come begging for you to stop boiling the bottle. And you could then barter for a release from the witchcraft. And some of them mention that if that doesn't work, you should bury the bottle. The buried bottles are the ones, are obviously the only ones we really study, archaeologically speaking, because the the boiled ones, if they were successful or not, were discarded. The buried ones do contain some differences to the boiled ones, in that the pins are definitely deliberately bent in the buried ones. And there's often hair in the buried ones, which is not typically one of the ingredients that was prescribed for the boiling of the bottles. So we seem to have two different practices which have a similar aim. The buried ones, it seems to be that they were mostly located near the hearth. And the idea was that any danger that might be entering the home by the chimney would be lured by this anthropomorphic bottle, thinking there's this little kind of humanoid figure. And it contains the urine and hair of its intended victim, and it attacks that instead of the person. And then it gets impaled on these ghostly pins, which have been killed by being deliberately bent inside it. And that seems to be what was going on. Although it is it is speculation, but spent an awful long time thinking about what might have been in people's minds when they did these things. And uh, that seems to be a plausible one when you look at all of the other things they used to get up to. Burying these bottles does seem to have a lot of different locations. And when Brian writes about the locations where witch bottles have been found since they were put there, saying he writes, the location of witch bottles within the building is also significant. Of those which had their location recorded, 50% were found beneath or within the hearth. And this was by far the most common location for the bottles overall. 11% of the bottles were found under the floor. 10% were found beneath the threshold. 8% were found in or beneath walls. And the remainder 
later were found in various locations outside of known buildings, end quote. Brian, was there a consensus that you discovered about the correct place to keep a witch bottle? Why are there so many different locations for the right place to put them? Well, it seems like there's many different locations, but actually most of them, the vast majority are within the house and they're essentially located on the perimeter of the house in some way or another, whether that be under the floor, um, beneath the wall, under the threshold or by the hearth. And I think the reason there's the focus on the hearth is, as I mentioned before, is it was constantly open to the sky. So it was a vulnerable point in the building where, um, you know, evil could enter the house quite freely where um, all the other entrances and exits like the windows and the doors could be protected using uh, marks or charms of other kinds. And the floor also was, was seen as a kind of vulnerable spot, really, that things could come up through the floor. And also partly it's about where where is accessible. So it's relatively easy to lift a floorboard. But having said that, you know, the 50% being by the hearth, that's quite difficult to bury them there because often they were found up to two feet below the level of the floor. So it's a lot of digging involved and um, and the relaying of a flagstone quite often or a hearthstone. So there's quite a big deal to um, to make one of these bottles and, and to conceal it by your heart. But, but as I say, the, generally speaking, we're talking about the perimeter of the home. Brian writes that there was only one case of a witch bottle being found in a coffin, though several were found buried in churchyards. Brian, I was surprised to read about this and the presence of witch bottles in a churchyard because I would think that the churchyard would be off limits for witches by nature of it being associated with holy ground. What was the purpose behind burying witch bottles in a churchyard? Well, I understand what you're saying about the idea of the churchyard being holy ground and, and indeed the church. But we all of the things that we find within the houses in domestic settings, uh, we also find them inside churches. So so there have been quite a few bottles that have been found um, in churchyards, not, not just this particular one. But this is the only one that I'm aware of that's been found directly in the coffin. So this one was found not far from a place called Milton Keynes in England, a place called Lawton or Loughton. And, uh, or maybe even Lufton. I'm not sure about the pronunciation of that one. But the bottle, it was what's called a steeple bottle. It was a glass steeple bottle. And um, it had lots of pins inside it. And the cork was stuck with pins as well. And, you know, our best thinking is that there must have been some link between the death of that person and witchcraft. And that this could have been some attempt by some people to protect the uh, remains of this person from further attacks by witchcraft or even that people believe this person uh, was guilty of some kind of witchcraft and that the bottle was put in there to prevent any further things happening from uh, this person, even in death. Another object thought to ward off evil spirits is that of dried cats. Brian's work draws attention to the fact that there is a controversy of sorts concerning the dried cats concealed in the walls from Shakespeare's lifetime because many scholars contest that the animal could have simply crawled into the tight space and died there accidentally. Brian, what has your research uncovered in the archaeological record to address the objection of cats accidentally dying in the walls of Tudor homes? Well, there's, a, there's actually quite, quite a lot of evidence that cats were deliberately concealed. Um, we've got some, some cats that have been found that have clearly been attached to timbers. There was one from a place called Dalton, which uh, clearly had been tied using wire to the floor joists under the property. We've also got some where it, it, it's categorically, I don't mean to say categorically as in cat, but it's definitely <laughs> definitely the case that the animal has been deliberately sealed into position by um, a builder. And, you know, one of the first ones I actually examined myself was found between two layers of thatch. 
and the layers of thatch were very tightly compressed and the cat was squashed quite flat. There really is no way the cat could have crawled in there at all. And there was no entryway, no, no exit point. Um, and the owner and the builders and the thatcher involved, sorry, uh, were all convinced that this was a deliberate internment. And there's another example from Penrith in England, you know, where um, a cat was found sandwiched between tiles and plaster. So it had essentially been welded to the tiles by plaster. And there are one or two examples. Um, there's one from South Wales, which was recently reported to me, which I knew about before, but just had some new details where there does seem to be some claw marks in the cavity where the cat was found as well, showing that it was um, trapped in this space and and it really was placed there by builders. It's very clear. But then there are others where you're not so sure. You know, there are others where um, a cat could have crawled to die. And, and obviously in the past, people didn't use to spay or neuter cats, so they were very common. And they could get a little bit out of control. Sometimes they could breed quite wildly. So there definitely are some that were accidents, but there are an awful lot where we definitely know they were concealed deliberately. So aside from the severe macabre nature of these stories of these cats, the next logical question seems to be, why in the world were people doing this? What was the dried cat supposed to provide in terms of a benefit to the property owner why why were they motivated to contain a cat inside their house this way okay we enter the realm of theoretical archaeology here i suppose but um but really um it seems to be that it's to do with the qualities of the cat it's this semi-nocturnal creature that has that many people uh, regard as being fairly mysterious in its behavior and of course, people had an association with cats being potentially the witch's familiar, that kind of thing. But your, your average domestic cat was um, a benevolent presence. It was a friend of the family. But as I said, you know, um, with, without spaying and neutering, cats would breed out of control quite often. And so it wasn't seen, you know, when we think about concealing a cat, it does, you know, for the modern pet owner, that sounds quite horrible, the idea of killing one. But, but when, when you had so many cats uh, breeding so profusely in the past, it wasn't really such a big deal to people. But, so it seems to me like people were trying to effectively trap a little spirit to their house. They were sort of sacrificing this cat to their house to be a little benevolent guardian spirit that could maybe catch, um, maybe ward off the witch's familiar, maybe also even ward off a spell that might be coming into your house. Okay, But there's also the idea where we're not sure how much of this idea was also involved, but there's also the idea of potentially a foundation sacrifice, which is where you give a life to a building so that it won't then take a life later by falling down on you. Um, but the problem with that, with cats, is that they're not usually found in foundations. They're usually found in the upright fabric of a standing building. And foundation sacrifice is usually very much about making an offering to the site, to the place where you, where you build that building. So, yeah, so it's probably to do with having your own small little kind of guardian spirit attached to the house. Across England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, animal bones, and specifically horse skulls, have been found concealed inside homes dating back to pre-1700s. Brian writes that, quote, in Herefordshire, at an inn called the Portway in Stoughton on why at least 24 horse skulls were found screwed to the underside of the floor where they were reputed to make the fiddle go better, end quote. Brian, I was impressed when I thought a single horse skull had been affixed to the inside of someone's home, but 24 skulls is a great many horses to have dispatched for this purpose. Did this Herefordshire record you reference indicate why it was important to have so many? 
No, it's the short answer. There's there's no evidence for, of, as to why that many. The one thing I would say is that I think that um, horses obviously used to be a very common form of travel, and there were there were what we call knackers yards quite regularly spread out across the country. So, like um, dead horses would be butchered, and um, their remains would be reused in various ways. But you could get horse skulls. You could buy them even from from these places. So it seems to me that they're basically multiplying the benefit of having a one horse skull by 24. So you're having 24 times the benefit of one. But um, it seems to be that when, when we find these skulls and when people were asked what was the purpose of the horse skull being there, often people did used to say that it was in order to improve the music. But generally speaking, people who hear this explanation um, think it probably was actually a way of passing off the presence of a superstitious object in your home. You know, if you were walking around with carrying a horse skull ready to conceal it in your home and you were stopped by a passing priest who was asking you what on earth were you doing, um, if it was to improve the music, that's a far better answer than I'm doing it to ward off evil from my home. And essentially, I think people were, came up with that, that story or that explanation to um, avoid accusations of um, heretical behaviour or indulging in folkloric practices. And it seems to be that the practice was to, to ward off witchcraft or to ward off evil. And partly that is, again, because a bit like the cats, the horse has a benevolent relationship with humans. It's seen as a nice, friendly spirit. Also, they're incredibly twitchy and alert. If you've ever owned a horse or been around horses, you know how alert they are and sensitive to strange noises and things like that. And also, when you see a defleshed horse skull, it's actually a very formidable thing to look at. And that explains why it's used in so many folk dances and rituals in you know, British, British countryside as well. Uh, so I think it's partly a kind of uh, scaring away a lesser evil with one with something that looks even more terrifying. There's a bit of that kind of almost like a gargoyle type of function to it as well. But again, with horses, because the the skulls are sometimes concealed in the earth, there is potentially an overlap with this old notion of foundation sacrifice as well. A much less violent but still curious artifact Brian's work highlights as a counter magic object is that of an old shoe. Brian writes that according to the Concealed Shoes Index at the Northampton Central Museum, quote, pre-1600s, there are around 50 examples of concealed shoes between 1600 and 1699, around 200. Brian, what kind of shoes are these that are being buried? Did it matter about the material or the shape? And what kind of magic was the shoe supposed to protect a home against? So this is a, an, an interesting one. Shoes, there, there's folklore and, and custom around shoes in pretty much every part of the world that you, you go to. But generally speaking, the ones we find are odd shoes, probably more, slightly more than 80% are all odd shoes. And there are some, in fact, it's probably more closer to 90%. But there's, there are some pairs. But generally speaking, it's a very worn, odd, old shoe. Sometimes you find lots of them together and they're all odd shoes, but just deposited by lots of different individuals. Um, in kind of big deposits and it seems to be that what we've got there is by the time you're ready to discard your shoe it's unique to your foot and certainly in the past that was the case because um, if you had bunions or corns or or whatever you would need to have the shoes adjusted to you know for those ailments of the foot and also because they were so expensive to have made they were you know they were an artisan sort of craft item they would be repaired and repaired until they couldn't be repaired anymore so they really were uh, unique to the wearer's foot, very much like the uh, Cinderella story. And um, and it seems to be that um, this could be used essentially as a decoy. So if there was some negative energy aimed at you or some witchcraft that was aimed at your home, if, if your odd shoe was concealed in a wall 
or beneath a windowsill or above a, a door frame or something like that or up in the roof then the idea was that this evil energy might be fooled into thinking that was you instead of actually you and that it would attack it instead of you and that it could become trapped within the shoe now i know that sounds slightly weird that it could be trapped in the shoe but there is some folklore that suggests that spirits and evil energies can't travel backwards so if they go into something they can't come out again and there's also this um, legend in britain from the early 14th century regarding a saint called john sean he was an unofficial english saint who was never actually canonized but he was the second most popular pilgrimage uh, site in, in britain for a period of about 250 years but um but yeah there was a legend that he cast the devil into a boot so this idea that you could trap devil in a boot or trap even in a boot was actually really commonly distributed in england from sort of the early 14th century for a period of about 250 years and in fact so popular was his pilgrimage that um there are huge numbers of pilgrim badges all showing the devil being trapped in a boot and there were paintings in various churches of, um which depicts john sean so this idea was visually communicated to huge numbers of people from the early 14th century onwards so whether that legend captures an existing practice to do with concealed shoes or whether it started it or popularized it, we're not entirely sure. But certainly it definitely did grow in popularity as a result of the popularity of pilgrimages to his shrine. Ryan quotes another scholar on concealed shoes when he writes, quote, June Swan states that apart from 20 unworn shoes, all other concealed shoes are in a worn condition and they have taken on some of the character of the wearer, end quote. This does indicate the personal nature of the shoes and would seem to support some kind of ritual connected with making a place more personal to the person who conceals the shoe. Brian, when my kids and I moved from our last house, we had to remodel the floors in one of the rooms. When we did that, we placed our handprints and the date with paint on the slab beneath the floor ostensibly so that some undetermined one day someone would discover that we had lived there is concealing your shoes inside the walls of your home a similar idea from the 16th century would there have been a reason to just mark that it was your house they could have been the one problem with that argument i guess is is that um shoes were so expensive so i don't think you would just cast one aside so freely i mean it, it may be the case certainly um not every concealed shoe is to do with warding off witchcraft. Um, some of them seem to be uh, keepsakes to do with infant mortality. There's there's one example I can remember where, um, in fact, this, this man was a very curious man. He used to tell me that he used to think that there was a, a ghost of a child in his house and that one day he discovered when he was doing some repairs, this little, uh, like a nickel plate on the floor. And when he lifted the little plate up, it had a child's shoe inside it. And he's convinced that the the ghost was the, the, you know, the child that that shoe had belonged to. And certainly the way... The reverence with which the shoe had been treated suggests that it was a very valuable treasured shoe and it probably was relating to the death of the child rather than um, to sort of any sort of form of counter witchcraft and some people also think that sometimes when you find a shoe inside a master bedroom for example it might be to do with fertility because sometimes people used to if they were having trouble con- conceiving there was this idea that you could take the shoe of a lady who had recently conceived or given birth and that some of that fertility could be brought into the bedroom but yeah, so it's not always to do with counter witchcraft, but the making a mark thing, I think people did used to, did used to do that, but, but quite often that was more to do with carving onto a timber or carving onto plaster rather than, you know, dispensing with, a, with an expensive object like a shoe. So we've mentioned witch bottles, cat heads, horse heads, and shoes, but what other kinds of artifacts have been hidden to counter magic spells? Well, one that we mostly have evidence from much later, but we know it used to go on during Shakespeare's time as well, was um, written charms. 
So people would go to their local cunning person or wise or then I suppose we maybe nickname them a white witch these days, but um and they might ask for some assistance in protecting their property. They might pay that person to produce a charm which would help protect their property from evil. And we've got lots of examples of this from the 19th century in particular, because obviously paper survives uh well, it's quite fragile. So um so we don't get so many from the 16th century. But what would happen was that these cunning people would actually do perform a series of rituals on someone's property that might take several weeks going around the perimeter of the property, making several visits to the same property, and it would culminate in the deposition of a charm. Sometimes it would be inside a bottle, sometimes it would be folded into a sheet of lead and inserted in a crack in the building. But that used to happen. We also get the use of iron quite a lot in the form of knife blades or scissor blades. So where a knife has been broken or some scissors have been broken, you'll take that bit of sharp iron and that might be placed beneath a windowsill or um, a door lintel or a chimney lintel. And the idea was that iron would ward off witchcraft, but also the fact that it was a broken something meant that it had been activated, if you like, on a ghostly or spirit plane. So you have this kind of sharp implement that now is active and potentially uh, dangerous to supernatural foes, which has now been placed uh, in your house. And then the other thing is protection marks. There's quite a lot of marks that used to be scratched onto plaster, wood or stone, which were specifically for protection. There are compass-drawn daisy wheels, which go by various names. Sometimes people call them rosettes or hex foils. I always use daisy wheels. But um, but yeah, these these are, um, you get a circle and you put the point of a compass on the, the edge of the circle and draw another circle. And then where they intersect, you draw another circle. And so you go all the way around the original circle and you end up with a beautiful six-petaled flower. And that is an ancient solar symbol, which has been used for protection since 1600 BC. But we find it all, all over the, the world. And then we also have little VV marks, two Vs that overlap, which is, seems to be an invocation to the Virgin Mary to protect the place. We also get burn marks as well. People would deliberately burn a kind of flame-shaped mark on chimney lintels um, and other wooden areas. And that, again, seems to be to provide a sort of ghostly candle flame on the other side, which would be shedding light there so that darkness can't lurk in those areas. And we find an awful lot of emphasis with all of these things. We we always find emphasis around the hearth area, because obviously that's where people would gather for warmth, but it's also always open to the sky. So it's the, it's the place that you need to protect most of all. I know we would love to explore more about the charms associated with counter magic and what's been found in archaeology and various explorations. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Believe it or not, there aren't actually that many books uh, dealing with it. Mine is obviously the the most recent one. But um, prior to that, we'd be looking at Ralph Merrifield's Archaeology of Ritual and Magic, which has two chapters dealing with the early modern period. So those of you interested in Shakespeare would find mainly two chapters interesting in that book. Other than that, there's also um, Ronald Hutton edited a series of a collection of essays um, with the press Palgrave recently, which I've got two chapters in, one on witch bottles and one on uh, concealed animals. But there are lots of other contributions from many other authors on other aspects of this. And then for, for sort of general reading, I love to keep Thomas's uh, Religion and the Plan of Magic. It's uh, an excellent book. We will link to these resources in the show notes for today's episode, along with a link to Brian's book, Magical House Protection, The Archaeology of Counter Witchcraft, which was published in 2019. You can check out all of these in the show notes today. So make sure you stay tuned after the episode for a link where to find those. Brian, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. 
Oh, that's a difficult one. There's one book that I find really fascinating just about magic generally, which is called The Persuasions of the Witch's, Witch's Craft, which is by Tanya Lerman. And I, I really just very much enjoy that book and the research that went into that. But yeah, it, it would be that or or religion and the kind of magic. I know, I know I'm not supposed to pick two. But but if I if I don't take the Bible, I'll take that instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you'd be well set up on your deserted island for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Uh, I'm working on two academic papers at the moment. One's going to be coming out in a collection of essays by Bloomsbury about the history of magic and witchcraft. And the other one is for um, a journal called Preta Nature, which is in published in the USA, actually. But yeah, I'm going to be working on some potentially a new book about some of these marks that we keep finding. But yeah, I can't say too much about it. But yeah, that's that's what I'm working on at the moment. Got to keep it under wraps. Well, we'll look forward to seeing it come to fruition. Hopefully we can talk to you again in the future once your book is brought into the world. And I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing with us the history of counter magic and witch bottles and cats and horses and the whole thing. This has been a really fun look into this part of Shakespeare's life. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cassidy. Be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode where you can take a look at images of the witch bottles, archaeologically uncovered cats, and more visual references for our topic today, along with quotes from Shakespeare's plays and links to Brian's book, as well as the resources he recommends you use to learn something new about this part of the life of William Shakespeare. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 185. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 185. Don't forget that the video version of our show is streaming right now on YouTube completely free. You can watch that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you like video content for our show, then make sure you check out the digital streaming app for that Shakespeare life. We have animated plays, bonus interviews, documentaries, and more all packed into the membership area for our show. Members get the digital streaming app along with monthly history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare. Join us inside as we cook, play, and create our way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and download that app at CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's it for this week. I'm Cassidy Cash. Thank you for being here. I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.